Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best life and how you can figure out how to do it too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Good morning, everybody. Uh, This is Ray Lowe, and I am the luckiest guy in the world. And one of the reasons I'm the luckiest guy in the world is I'm sitting here in scenic downtown Woodbury, New Jersey, at the Wildfire Podcast Studios, and with an engineer, uh, Taylor, who uh, absolutely takes all the care and worry about running a podcast off of me and makes this run. So we're here with our program, Changing the Rules, and let me take a minute and just refresh everybody's memory on uh, rules and why they need to be changed. You know, all during our lives, people throw rules at us, and they're still doing it today. I mean, we just had a whole series of COVID rules that were thrown at us. And when we get rules, um, they they get to a point where they start to clutter our lives and start to get in the way. Uh, rules either tend to be something that tell us what we have to do or they tell us what we can't do. And at some point in our lives, we have to look at those rules and decide which of those rules are pertinent to us. And we have to figure out what our body of rules are going to be. And if you're living your life by somebody else's rules, uh, you're living somebody else's lives. And only when you change the rules and make them your rules do you become free to be you. And that's what this show is all about. And today I actually have two guests. I have a guest host that I'm going to introduce in a second, and then we have a guest guest. So again, I'm lucky. I get the best of all worlds, and they're both absolutely fascinating young ladies. And let's start with Rebecca Hoffman. And Rebecca has been our guest host for this month of April. And uh, welcome to Changing the Rules, Rebecca. Thanks, Ray. Good to be here again with you this week. And and I'm not going to let you off the hook. We're going to talk a little bit more about this good egg stuff. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I am good. I am fa- I met Rebecca a good number of years ago, uh, and uh, she was working on a marketing pro- problem for me, and and she introduced herself as the good egg, and I've <laughs> always found this fascinating. Okay. And Rebecca, refresh our memory on why you're the good egg. Uh, well, it reaches back a long time ago when I had to make my first email address and didn't know what an email handle should be. And my friend said, be the good egg. And so I became the good egg many, many years before I ever was doing the sort of work I do now. And the name stuck as nicknames do. And it's here. And the good egg is not broken. And in fact, the good egg is doing wonderful things. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's bringing life to new ideas, I think. So so one of the things that Rebecca did for me a long ago and oh so far away is she helped me craft a series of stories which have been part of my marketing campaign. And and I'm not going to tell you the stories. You probably heard them already, but we have the story about the airplane and the hyenas and the penguins <laughs> and the map and the geezer jock of all things. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things I learned from Rebecca is the power of a good story. And what she is a master at is creating stories and teaching people how to create stories that will become part of their brand and memorable to them. So did I get that kind of right? Rebecca? Well, thank you. I, as I like to say, I, like, I need to spend more time with you, Ray, because you make me feel good. Well, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not finished. I'm going to take this line out of your website, which absolutely fascinates me. So good aid concepts is an economical, thoughtful, 
clever, endlessly curious consulting firm focused on your goals for brand. And uh, Rebecca, welcome to Changing the Rules. Thank you, Ray. And, uh, it's good to be here with you. And and we have a guest today, and uh, this is a guest we wouldn't have if you weren't being our guest host. And she is an absolutely fascinating, fascinating lady. And why don't you give us a little bit of background on sure. uh, on Nicole? Other than I want to start with one line, and then we're going to come back to this. This whole podcast is about from CIA to art sleuth. <laughs> yes, that's a good hint. Well, I'd like to introduce Jane Jacob, who I've known now for more than 20 years. Uh, we were introduced through um, some work we were able to do together, and she hired me when I was quite young, uh, and we worked together at the Terra Museum of American Art in Chicago. Um, and that's where I got to know Jane. But really, uh, over the years, I've stayed in touch with Jane. We're friends. We've had the chance to collaborate a few times. But Jane is um, spectacular in that her entire career has focused on art, but not just art, uh, really on um, the qualities of art that need to be protected and how to do that. And she's done this in a few different ways through an art consulting practice and most recently now through the launch of artverite.com. Art Verite is her new um, newest company launch, uh, a multimedia company that's providing documentary film to protect artists and inform collectors and everyone who needs to know in the art world what's what. So I think um, without further ado, we should introduce Jane and invite Jane into our conversation. And I think what would be really fun, because Ray, you alluded to this, Jane had an interesting childhood. And if you could briefly tell us how your childhood possibly has informed your career, there's always tendrils reaching back, and we'd love to hear. So thank you, Jane, for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca and Ray, for this invitation to have a conversation with you all. Um, to answer your question, Rebecca, um, I would very succinctly say that the Cold War crashed with art for me. Um, I'm the daughter of a CIA operative, and um, my my life was spent moving around the world and included um, a stint where I began school in Okinawa um, off the coast of Japan. And um, my father was always out of the country and we were out, he was out of the country that we were in, you know, so we kind of grew up with um, uh, a mother who loved Jackie Onassis's um, statement, um, you may not like to do it, but we're going to get the job done. And um, <laughs> so that's actually how, I don't know if that was allowing me to break the rules early on in my life, but I learned, you know, to be a survivor. We moved around the world um, always. Um, we usually moved in the middle of a semester. So we had to go in and create our time, you know, and persona into a community that already existed into a curriculum that we were behind on. And I learned to be a survivor. Um, in the second grade in Okinawa, however, um, we had a Japanese art teacher. And um, at that time, many little girls aspired to be nurses or teachers or homemakers, none of which I was interested in. And <laughs> that changed my life. Um, it gave me a way to look at life through the lens of an artist. And so from that time on, I decided that that was what my path was going to be. So um, that's really what informed my early childhood. 
And you have been changing the rules all the way through your career. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the work you've done as we get ready to talk about your work through Art Verite? Uh, yes. You know, the I, work that you did previously? Yes. I, um, I began my career in the art museum field. And where you and I met, I ended as the deputy director of the Terror Museum of American Art here in Chicago. Um, and through that, um, I, when I did my master's degree, I did a case for registering works of art under the umbrella of the United Nations by treaty by country. Um, in the 1990s, the um, governmental information about World War II became public document as it does after 50 years. And um, all of a sudden, there was this huge influx of stolen art in the subject of stolen art. And it interested me very, very much. Um, and I um, conferred and partnered with an art attorney, um, which was my first relationship with an art attorney who served on the board of the Chicago, um, the Art Institute of Chicago. And it just got me to thinking about this problem of art and protecting it. And, um, you know, then the restitution, you know, that needed to take place. And so I began my career, you know, doing provenance research. Um, and when I left the museum field and began my, um, also parallel business to Art Verite, Jacob Fine Art, we were consultants for people with art collections, institution, institutional collections, private collections, corporate collections, international collections. And, and people came to me and said, I, I have this, but I'm not sure, you know, about where it came from. So. That, that's fascinating. And I think um, as part of the run-up to this whole area of work in, around uh, fakes and forgeries and art theft, you founded a symposium in New York. Could you tell us um, about that, what that I was did. like? I did. Um, I taught at New York University for um, over pretty much 12 years. And um, because this problem of... Um, criminal activity in the arts didn't seem to be going away. I mean, there's the famous quote of the FBI, perhaps 60% of the art in the marketplace is a fake or a forgery. Pretty arresting. So I convinced my dean that um, I would love to launch an art crime conference. We launched it in London and then brought it into New York City and had it for four years. And that was um, really uh, the beginning of my quest to do something personally about the problem with criminality in the artwork and protecting art for art history. Um, and so that's spectacular. Yeah. And how, how now with Art Verite are you protecting art? What are some of the what are some of the ways your filmmaking is doing that? Yeah, can can I interrupt for a minute, uh, Rebecca? I'm going to interrupt sure. whether you like it or not. Okay, that's perfect. <laughs> but can we go back a little bit and talk about some of the problems that museums have with uh, knowing whether art is real and sure. and 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 what the cost is of finding out maybe something is not real and and because i think it sets the stage for where we're going with the solution that uh that jane brings to the table sure sure well museums um are are not in you know they're not without risk when they collect art because they collect an enormous amount of art it comes from all different places and so um there have been many instances where museums have really gotten caught um you know unknowingly perhaps to with works of art that were stolen 
and even artworks that were forgeries. And so in that, um, their, their, their whole reason for existing is to protect art collections. So having a piece of stolen art is a problem. Having a work that is purported to be by a particular art artist corrupts art history. That's a problem. And so every institution is faced with these problems as are private collectors. And so with museums, they're their hunger and thirst to build collections for the general public and sometimes um, going in a, a specific path. For example, if you have the Art Institute of Chicago, for example, has many Monets, more Monets than any other um, uh, museum outside of Paris. And so if you're going in a particular direction and your appetite is a voracious one to collect the best collections for the general public, you eventually you're going to get caught. Um, the criminality component in this world is they're very good. They're, they're very good. And they, um, they actually are able to, um, to pull the wool over, you know, experts' eyes. Um, and it's very complicated, Ray, what you're talking about in order to find out about a piece of art. It is very costly in that it takes a lot of hours. I think a lot of people just think it may be the Antiques Roadshow. It is or it isn't. And that is not at all reality. It's research and arduous years sometimes to find out whether there's clear title or whether it is an authentic piece of artwork. And then um, there's even within the system of experts, there are differences of opinions. Um, and so it's very costly. It's costly to art history, the knowledge that we have that goes from generation to generation to learn about an artist. It's costly for those that invest in it and lose the money. I think we've um, we, we've addressed the fact that the court system has basically said you should be doing your due diligence and put the onus on the buyer. Where reality is is that the onus should be on those that are expert in the field of arts, and they're the ones that are contributing. Savvy museums ask better questions now. Um, it continues to grow. It's not going away. It's not being solved by legislation. Um, it's not being solved by just um, a catalog raisonné, which is a compendium of an artist's works. Every artist doesn't have a catalog raisonné. Um, and so that's a costly endeavor, too, to document every single piece of known artwork around the world for a particular artist. So you can see that the cost of these things can be enormous. And the currency is not always money. Um, the currency, really, the bottom line, and this is how Art Verite has gotten involved with this, it's about your reputation. Um, that's what we are, are positioned to do. We are putting together films which address the, the resolve to these problems. And in many ways, it's not always a case that's happened. It's a case that could happen. And with that, we are positioning institutions, collectors, attorneys even, artists for certain, in a, in a way that the, it saves them time because we bring together all the experts. It saves them money because they could not go all over the world and find these experts. They 
Um, they may not invest in something that red flags have gone up about, and it saves them first and foremost reputation. Yeah, that's, I, kind of, that's gotta be the worst part of it is is taking the blame when you find out you spent several million dollars on something that isn't real. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 horrific, you know, it is. But to make everybody feel better, you know, it happens to the best of us, you know, it happens to major institutions all over the world. It happens to the auction house when they can sign a work of art to sell. It happens to galleries whenever they go out and buy a work of art. Um, it certainly happens through estates when you inherit works that you thought your grandfather had this, you know, multi-million dollar piece of art, and it turns out to be nothing more than a copy. Um, so yeah, it, it happens to everybody. It, it definitely does. Yeah. Now I think this sets a stage for where you're going to go here and I'll let you go off in that tangent in a minute. But, but the other thing that I, I realized in looking at some of the material that you sent me is that it's not all about these famous famous uh, artists, the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts and all of these things. That's a whole series of problems. But what about the younger, less known artists, the up and coming ones? And, and, and don't we have a whole series of issues and problems there too? That's a very good question. And the answer is succinctly yes. Um, emerging artists or artists, you know, who are um, in the beginnings of their career, or even sometimes in the mid-career, where they may not be represented by a major institution or any institution at all, have just as many problems. They're commissioned to do works. Their works are consigned with galleries. They um, are involved in things where people want them to do which something that may be outside their bailiwick because they have an idea. Um, but basically, um, lo looking at the way that galleries today, for example, do hands handshake deals, that is very, very much a general operative with many galleries. Um, that's the way they've always done business. It's the status quo. That happens to be happens to affect artists in many, many ways. If the gallery is not um, unscrupulous, I mean, they may be just as honest as they can be and really have the best interest at heart, they can also enter into things like bankruptcy. And if the artist doesn't know, for example, to, to file a UCC form, which is a $50 form to protect their work in the case of bankruptcy, their artwork consigned to that gallery can become part of the liability of that settlement. Um, obviously through COVID, and you've mentioned that, Ray, um, there have been many, many times where galleries have shuttered. The um, art is in a storage facility the, the artist can't have access to it. Um, also, there have been, we are in the middle of doing a film where an artist's work was lent to an HBO pilot. Um, and the, the dealer that organized that um, did not pay the artist. It was if the pilot went into seasons, he would be paid for the pilot as well as the seasons. Um, so it wasn't, so he had to file a lawsuit. Um, artists who good-naturedly give their designs to um, commercial entities that they're just feeling like, I just want to show you what I can do, have had their, their designs stolen and used and put into production. Um, so, yes, emerging artists can have a lot of problems. Lots so of problems. what are some of the ways that your films are going to help and what 
what parts of the world will they touch? Because watching your first film that I've had a chance to see, it's extremely watchable. Even just as a person in the world, you can learn a lot and it's just extremely interesting. But then there's obviously a higher level of uh, watching that people who care will be doing. So how, right. how will your films contribute to what's known? Well, um, what we do is we bring together the most recognized experts um, in the world. What we do is... Um, what we call a symbiotic relationship storytelling method. Um, and that's a long, that's a long, <laughs> lots of commas in that. But basically, um, we bring together um, artists um, or art stories about an artist. So all of our artists are not alive that have had something happen. There's been a problem uh, and it had to be addressed either on the front end through an attorney to protect them or on the back end through litigation also an attorney to protect them. And so we feel like by bringing together these stories and using the experts that may be um, forensic scientists, which talk about materials, they may be gallery um, you know, directors or personnel, they may be curators through museum, that we bring all the information together on a platform that is usually viewed within an hour or less to provide for the watchers, and we'll get to the audience in a second, Rebecca, but to provide the watchers and the viewers um, a thought, a thinking process of like, hey, this could happen to me. What was done in this case? What could I do differently? Um, one of the films we've done about an artist, I believe you watched it, Dan Peterman, who's yes. an international artist, Chicago-based, mm -hmm. um, had um, an instance where his work of art was shipped from Castle, Germany, back into Chicago, and it was horribly damaged. Well, he didn't take pictures beforehand. He definitely um, didn't consider that that was going to happen. Um, and so while he did receive insurance, it was a year and a half settlement. His work of art wasn't restored for that amount of time. And it was one of his, his iconic works. And the insurance people in that um, in that film actually go through and tell artists what to think about. What should you think about? What kinds of forms should you have? Should you use transit insurance, which doesn't cover, you know, a pittance of what the value of work is, and it's more expensive. So very pragmatic information is given in each one of our films because the artists that are involved or the storytellers, be they attorneys or FBI agents, they're very willing to be transparent about what went on in particular instances where art crime or not even crime, but accidents or unforeseen circumstances happen. Um, so there's great insight as far as um, here's what can happen. Here's how you should think about it. Here's what you can do to protect yourself. That's what our films do. Our audience includes... Um, art attorneys, you know, the art um, consultants such as wealth strategists, family practices, um, insurance companies, which are financial as well, um, museums, galleries, auction houses, and of course, artists. So I'd love to get to that conversation about why the artist is so integral, and I know we will, but basically, these films are not just for artists. These films are for the nucleus that surrounds the art community. 
And so that's really, you know, our intent is to bring everybody into this community, address all the problems, and to ultimately establish relationship in positive ways between the community. If I love you, I'll protect you. If you love me, I'll protect you. And so um, basically, you know, that's the idea of Art Verite. Cool. You know, unfortunately, Jane, we're getting near the end of our time. Time flies when we're having fun. And, and, and you know, I, you presented an interesting history here. You know, it, uh, I'm going to take you back to the CIA because I just think that's neat. But, but I think the, the whole crux of your career was building towards this uh, – uh, value that you're bringing to the table now. And uh, I, I, th- I think uh, you'd be commended as an artist, an art scholar, a patron of the arts. And, and, you know, you're, it all comes down so that we can go to a museum and we can view these spectacular things and we know they're real and we know something about them. So thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Do you, do you have any final comments you'd like to make before we wind up? You know, I'd love to just take a second and talk about why art is so integral to life and how people might consider thinking about it in um, a bit of a paradigm shift. Um, One is, um, I think we've had a conversation um, initially about artists um, really speak through their medium, just like musicians, just like authors. um, They use a a medium to express what's going on inside them. In fact, I define art history as history through the lens of the art. Um, Artists are often social realists. Um, Many, many people we know go into museums and go, oh, my three-year-old could have done that. Why is this in a museum? And I really believe that one, you should have the permission not to like something. Nobody, you should never feel embarrassed about going into a museum and not resonating with a work of art. We don't resonate with all the people that we encounter. I mean, some people we want to be best friends. I love Rebecca. Um, And there are plenty of people that I meet in her field that, you know, I really just don't want to be their friend. You know, nothing negative. It just, we just don't resonate. And that is the way art is. It is an expression. So I just want to give this final story about my friend who is German, who took me through an exhibition in New York City um, of German expressionist art. And I, my first encounter, and I have a long time history in the art world was I just, I would never want to live with this on my, on my wall. I don't, not that why was it in the museum collection, but I, I don't, I don't really want to look at this stuff. It's too painful, you know? And she took me through with the history of the Weimar, um, in Germany during a time of depression and economic downturn. And this particular piece I was looking at was a drawing of a man in a top hat standing outside of a beautiful bourgeois restaurant, everybody drinking their martinis and dressed to the guild. And he was urinating on a man on the sidewalk. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, what is this about? And she went on to explain to me what was going on in the Weimar. And of course it opened up a whole new world to me and I've done research and I still don't want it on my wall over my breakfast table every morning, but I really believe that if people take the time to get to know the artist behind the artwork, that the ability to enjoy the conversation is so much greater. And that is my hope for the world, Ray. 
Well, I don't think there's a better way to sum up. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for being with us and for opening thank my you, eyes to this world of art that I didn't understand before. And and uh, thanks for being one of the luckiest people in the world. And thanks for sharing your journey and where it started and where it wound up with the rest of us. So uh, uh, hopefully we'll uh, get you to come to one of our cocktail conversations sometime and we can ask more specific questions to you. Love to. And I just want to say thank you so much for for this conversation. It's been delightful. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you. And we'll see you guys next week with another exciting podcast. Thank you for listening to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best life and how you can figure out how to do that, too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. It's gonna have to be a deal.